Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We'd love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit us online at www.liferva.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. I uh, feel a little inadequate for the moment. have a message about Pentecost and Pentecost Sunday in particular and God's word is capable of standing on its own. It needs no preface or apology. And God's word is extremely real. It's alive. It challenges us. It changes us. It helps us to recognize those things in us that are wrong, and it convicts us those things that are right and it will confirm them. And the solution for our world is not more rhetoric, it's not more words. It is the, truly the power and spirit of the Almighty God. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a day that's celebrated as the birthday of the New Testament church. It was a day when the Holy Spirit was poured out initially on 120 believers in an upper room in Jerusalem and 3,000 later in the day after the Apostle Peter preached his initial sermon and made his first altar call. I'm always amazed by this story because I think many times in our world we hear the word Pentecost or Pentecostal and we automatically have visions in our mind of certain things. We think of people in churches that handle snakes or we think of people that go through Walmart and talk in tongues as they walk down the beer aisle and for those of you that may have thought that's what Pentecostal meant today may be revelational for some of you because Pentecost is so much more today you can be spirit filled and not be weird can you say amen you can have an experience with Jesus that revolutionizes your life forever, that changes you for in a moment, that literally can change anyone from someone who is hell-bound, determined to go as far to, the, to hell as they can get and split it wide open to somebody who makes a U-turn and is headed toward heaven, putting their heart and hope in Jesus Christ. And a moment like the moment experienced 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost is that kind of moment, and you can have that moment today. 
I know that we're used to big altars and we're used to having people come down front and this is the only place you can experience Jesus. But I want you to know today where you're sitting in your socially distanced row is more than capable. It's a big enough altar for Jesus to fill you with his spirit right now today. Where about Joe Hardy is sitting, maybe a row behind him. When I was six years old, I was laying underneath a pew in an old church in Beaverdam, Virginia, and I watched my dad during the third song of worship service stand up, give his life to Jesus, and began to speak in a language he never learned as a kid because he only got through eighth grade. He didn't learn any other language but English, and all of a sudden God filled him with his spirit sitting where Joe sits. We don't have to have this altar. We don't have to have any special place. Wherever you are is your altar this morning, and Jesus can fill you just like he did 2,000 years ago. Now, if you want the original message, you can watch that on, on, on YouTube or Facebook or the website, but I'm all over the place today, and that's okay. The events can be found in the second chapter of the book of Acts. If Joe Markovich was here today, he would tell me that that was a band from the 70s and 80s, but that's not the one I'm talking about. I'd like to build a little bit of a foundation if I can because many people don't understand what Pentecost really means and what it's really all about. And so I'd like to lay down just a little foundation if I can. 1 Corinthians 14.40 tells us that all things are to be done decently and in order. And God operates according to an order, a plan, a purpose. He has an order for everything he does. Out of disorder and chaos, God spoke the worlds into existence. He created a plan or an order by which our world governs itself. And where once our world was nothing but darkness, God created a plan, an order by which our days are numbered. We call them the sun, the moon, day and night. We know what day it is and what time it is based upon the order created by God in the sun and the moon. God's order is perfect. The plan he designs to govern our days and our nights continues to work without fail. And it will continue until he comes to take us to a city where the Bible says the lamb is the light, therefore we have no need for sun or moon because he is the light of that city. When Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he took them into the wilderness and God gave him a very specific order, a very specific plan, how he was to build the house of God, how many layers of what fabric and what color, how many pieces of furniture, where they were to be laid out. And if you utilize that plan that God gave, it can lead you into a deeper level of prayer if you will take advantage of God's order and plan. To this day, that helps me when I pray. When I go through the pieces of the tabernacle plan, and we could spend a whole time of, of, of teaching on that to help you to pray more in regards to that, but it changes how I pray. Order is important to God, and today is no different. God still operates according to a plan. He maintains an order. When Jesus died at Calvary, he was buried in a tomb. He rose again the third day. He created a plan or an order by which you and I are able to experience the great gift of salvation. Paul said over and over again that he preached what he received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. He identified Jesus' death at Calvary with our dying out to sin. He identified his burial by saying that we are buried with him through baptism. He identified Jesus' resurrection by describing the dwelling of his spirit, stating that it would cause us to rise to the newness of life in Christ Jesus. He still operates according to a plan. Anyone who has known me for very long knows I'm fascinated by the Old Testament and the lifestyle of the Jewish people, but more importantly, I'm really fascinated by God's order for the Old Testament and how it comes to pass or comes to fruition in the New Testament. 
God's order is perfect. It never stops. Sometimes we think that we are living in a day where the church and the old paths are no longer valid or the old way of life is exactly that, an old way of life, and the old plans are no longer valid. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, some of y'all ought to shout about this, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Without a doubt, the method of his order has changed over time, but his message is still very real, very much alive. It is not out of date. It has not changed and will always remain the same. God's message, since sin entered the world, and we see the results of sin in our world even today, has been that he desires a people who will live free from the clutches of sin and will strive to live righteously in an unrighteous world. That is the message of God. Now, don't miss this. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God's message has been one of hope and restoration, endeavoring to bring man back into relationship with him. Throughout history, his methods of doing so have changed. He's used a flood. He's used a tabernacle plan. He's used prophets. He's used people to come along and, and take people and lead them by the hand. He even used a group of people to take his children into, the, into captivity to try to get their attention. Finally, when they came back, he sent his son, the only begotten son, that he might find a way. And finally, on the day of Pentecost, he changed his method again. But his message throughout the entire process has remained the same. Now, this morning, Pastor mentioned it already, there are churches everywhere who are celebrating Pentecost. Many are only celebrating it as a historical event, but I'm thankful today to be able to celebrate Pentecost, not as an event, but as an experience, as the Spirit not only was poured out and then it continues to be poured out to this day. What an amazing day that was. I've often captivated by the events of that day, and imagine what it must have been like to be there on the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out for the first time in such a magnificent way. The Bible gives really some fascinating insight into the story. And if we're willing for just a moment, I'd like to take a look. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, what sound? That was a sound that we're going to talk about in just a moment from Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. When that sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. I spent a lot of money in Bible college to learn how to pronounce those words. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Pastor, I think sometimes people come to our churches and they experience Pentecost, but they don't have a clue what it means. And so they ask themselves, just like they did, what in the world does this mean? Whatever could this mean? When you read that, have you ever stopped and wondered, whatever did it mean? Well, I'll tell you, because it wasn't a coincidence and it wasn't an accident that those people from all over the world showed up in Jerusalem on that very day to experience this amazing thing that was being done. 
See, in Jerusalem, there was a feast going on. It was called the Feast of Weeks. That was instituted in Exodus. That eventually, as Greek became the more common language, it became known as the Feast of Pentecost. And Pentecost literally means 50 or 50 days. In Exodus, Moses in Egypt instituted the Feast of Passover. You've probably heard of that one. In the month of Abib, the 14th day of the month, a lamb was slain. And the blood from that lamb was placed on the doorpost and on the, on the top part of the door and the Israelites' home because it was meant to signify whose side they were on when the death angel came by. From that day on, Passover was celebrated to commemorate the, the, the deliverance of God, the Passover. The day following Passover as part of the Passover festivities was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It doesn't sound very tasty. Why couldn't there be a feast of the yeast roll? A feast of the Krispy Kreme donut. But no, the feast of unleavened bread. The feast of the stale cracker. Doesn't sound like a feast I'd want to be a part of. But it was a feast that coincided with the Sabbath and there was no work to be done. The feast of unleavened bread. The day that followed would have been the 16th day of Abib, or Nippon in the Greek. It would have been the first day of the week, and it it coincided with a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. It was a day of offering the first fruits unto God. Israel had to pass over. The death angel passes over overnight. The next day they eat of the unleavened bread with their loins girt about with with loins girt up ready to move. And then that, that day they are released from Egypt because Pharaoh had had enough. And then they are delivered. God brings the water, splits apart, you know, brings the water down on the whole nation of Egypt that was fighting against them. They come to the other side, and they offer an offering unto God in honor of his delivering power, and that was called the Feast of First Fruits. That was the beginning of a period of time that we know of that leads up to Pentecost. Pentecost, remember, meaning 50 days. 50 days following the Feast of Passover, the children of Israel found themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, where Moses is descending from the mountain, and Moses has been surrounded by the presence of the Almighty God as God gave him his intentions, his law, his plan for the people of, his, for the people of God. And Pentecost is the day that the law of God was given by Moses to the people of God after Moses had been on the mountain. Now, there's a lot of people out there who would tell you that when Jesus died at Calvary, the law of God was put aside, and the requirements of the law are no longer valid. But the truth is this. God's moral law was never meant to be set aside. God's desire for a law that would govern our morality and our lifestyle choices has always been and will always be. God's law was designed to draw us into relationship with him as we strive to live lives that are righteous and holy before God. We did an entire series, pastor did an entire series on the Ten Commandments just a, a, a few months back. And if you, you, you want to know how they apply to your life today, you ought to check out that series. When God gave the law, he didn't give it to be a taskmaster, the, to lord over us, that we, something that we would never be able to live up to and just waiting for us to be beaten because we messed up. No, no, no. He gave it to be a schoolmaster, to guide us, to direct us, to help us to find the right path and to live in the right direction. When we sin, we violate God's law, and restitution has to be made. In the Old Testament, it required a sacrifice. It required blood to be shed to make right that thing that was wronged. Somebody or something had to shed blood to make restitution for the violation. Now, I know a lot of Christianity doesn't want to talk about blood anymore. 
They want salvation without the confrontation of sin. They want a cross without crucifixion. They want power without price. They want heaven without being holy. They want right living without living right. But today, let me tell you, when we violate the law of God, a price still has to be paid to bring us back into relationship with the one we have violated. The road to righteousness will always be paved with the blood of the one who died to give me the opportunity to connect to him. The blood of Jesus Christ is always what will be necessary to forgive sin. Now, when God wrote his law on tablets of stone, and he gave them to Moses for the people. And Moses came down the mountain, the first Pentecost occurs, 50 days following the Feast of Passover. God's law was his covenant with the people. It was his pledge to be their God and his desire that they would be his people. It was a covenant drawn up between God and man, and it was more than just a list of rules and regulations. It was God's desire, God's wishes for his people to live free, his desire to share with his people the most intimate things about himself and to ask them to live in communion with him. It was his covenant that man show, showed man the way to him. Now, the law that God gave had power. After all, it had come from the throne of God. But the Bible says in Romans that the law was ineffective. And the reason the law was ineffective had nothing to do with God. Just the same reason that laws on our books are ineffective. They don't have anything to do with the law or the executive branch that has the power to enforce the law. You know what they have? The, you know why the laws are ineffective? Because of us. Because within us is a desire to sin, to break the law. And therefore, the law is ineffective not because it had no power, because it came from God. The law was ineffective because it had everything to do with man and his desire to please the sin and desires of his flesh. In other words, because man desires to please his flesh more than he desires to please God, God's law is violated and ineffective in dealing with the sin problem. And because sin separates God from his people, he had seen enough. And that's why he sent his son. Paul described it this way, and I love it, in Romans chapter 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak, not weak because it didn't have the power of God, but it was weak through the flesh, God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What flesh? Not your flesh, not my flesh, but in the flesh of Jesus Christ that was hung on a tree that you and I might live free. Notice verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, God's desire from the beginning was for us to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. In our flesh, in our own, we aren't able to do it. His desire was for us to live right. And the only way for that to occur was for us to fulfill the requirements of the law. But because we're incapable of doing such a thing on our own, Jesus comes. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, my one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture it says, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, that word, word, if you have it in your Bible, you ought to circle it. It's capital W there. That ought to be your first clue that that's something different. It's not just a word on paper. It's something more. And if you look up that word, word, you find out that it is more. It doesn't just mean word. It means plan. It means the order birthed out of chaos. In other words, because of sin, we live in a chaotic world that continues to reign in chaos to this day. But God is the incarnate word. Jesus Christ is the incarnate word, the the word that was dwelt among us and put in flesh so that we could behold his glory and somehow come into relationship with him and birth order in the midst of the chaos of sin. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross. He shed his blood to break the condemnation of sin once and for all, to give us power to live to the righteous requirements of the law. His grace was never designed to supersede the righteousness of the law, but rather to help make up the difference. When I was a kid, I'll never forget it, used to go to, I think it was in Ashland, I think it was called Murphy's Mart. It was the predecessor to Ames, whatever was there in that little shopping center in Ashland. And I'll never forget going there. And I got a little bit of money, Kevin, had a little bit of money and had a couple matchbox cars I wanted to buy, and I go to the register. And the Matchbox cars, let's say, I don't know what they were. Let's say they were 99 cents a piece. I said, 99 plus 99, that's $1.98. I know exactly how much I need. I walked up to the register with $1.98 to pay my bill. And they rang it up, and they said it was $2.04. I'm like, what? I got $1.98. That's all I got. And I'll never forget it, Kevin, as long as I live. I don't remember the numbers. I don't even remember what I bought. But I do remember the words that came out of my father's mouth standing in line behind me. He said, I'll make up the difference. See, that's what grace does for us. We do our best to live up to the righteous requirements of the law. I don't know about you. I don't wake up in the morning desiring to be a bad guy. I don't wake up in the morning desiring to sin. I don't get out of my bed in the morning and go, you know what, I'm going to cause some trouble today. No. I want to be right. I want to do good. I try my best. I live up to what I can live up to. But on my own guarantee, I'm going to mess it up every single time. But Jesus Stands in the line behind me at the checkout counter. And through his grace and through his death at Calvary and through his shed blood that has been applied to my life, he looks at me and he says, I'll make up the difference. I'll make up the difference. If you ever wonder what grace was, that's what grace is. It's that peace that you can't do on your own. It makes up the difference. Now, remember, I spent a lot of time at the start of this, so we got to go quickly to the end talking about the order of God. I want you to understand today, if you don't get anything else out of what I'm about to say, when things happen in your life, when stuff happens that you can't control or understand, you need to mark it down that God has a plan. And God is working even when you can't see it. We sang this song last week, Waymaker. The bridge is so powerful because it reminds me that even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. Even when, even when, even when 
He's still working. And I promise you, there are times I don't feel it. There are times I don't see it. And there are times I feel completely in the dark. But even when I don't see it, he is working. He is working. He is working. Yesterday, as I sat on my couch and I watched some of the the news reports, and I just sat there and I almost wanted to just break down and cry. And all I could say is, he is working. He is working. I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't see it in any way, but he is working. You have to see this today. God operates according to a pattern. And because man continued his lifetime struggle to overcome sin and continued to fall and continued to fail, Jesus came to earth. He lived a spotless, blameless life, 33 and a half years, give or take a month or two. He healed. He forgave sins. He preached. He taught. He called disciples. And according to Scripture, although he was tempted, he remained without sin. And then on the 14th day of Abib, on the Jewish calendar, the Lamb of God was crucified. There should be a pattern starting to emerge in your mind. Because on the 14th day of Abib, some 2,500 years earlier, the first lambs were, were crucified to bring life. Their blood was shed. Then on the 14th day of Abib, on the Jewish calendar, the Lamb of God was crucified. And as people were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the first Passover, the ultimate Passover lamb was sacrificed. The following day was the Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why they had to get Jesus off of the cross because the next day was the Holy Day. And as those in Jerusalem feasted on the bread that had no leaven or no life in it that would cause it to rise, the bread of life lay dead with no life in him in an empty borrowed tomb. The day that followed was the first day of the week. And according to the pattern, the first feast of first fruits, a day that we know of as Easter. And it is that day, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and 20, Jesus became the first fruit offering of the grave. It is a day that Jesus on his own and under his own power rose again from death into life, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Now, the Bible lets me know that over the next 40 days, Jesus showed himself to his disciples, the apostles, walked amongst them day in, day out, saw at times up to to, uh, 500 people were with him, telling them to go to Jerusalem and remain there until they received the promise of the Father where he would send unto them. 120 followers of Jesus make their way to Jerusalem. It's now the final days of the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. Fifty days have passed since his death and the feast of Passover. And that is when the Bible says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. You know, we just read that. Well, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, what did that mean? Oh, just the calendar clicked. No, 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 no. In other words, when the 50 days were complete, when everyone had arrived in Jerusalem to honor the covenant between God and man, when everyone had come together to commemorate that day he had given the law, When all of that had been spread around in a known world to celebrate, come here, come back, we're going to have a celebration of the law when the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all in one accord, together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and it sat on each of them, and then the Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or the ability to speak. It was all part of a plan. It all worked in order when the day had fully come. It wasn't a coincidence. 
It wasn't by poetic irony that God chose this day, the day where everybody had come back to Jerusalem from all over the world. Jews had been spread around and they'd come back. Why? Because on the day that that happened and they experienced it, he had automatic missionaries just going back home. You need to think about that for a minute. Y'all didn't get excited about it like I did, but y'all think about that. See, Jeremiah actually had told about this day a long time before. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. In those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Jeremiah had watched the children of Israel be led off into captivity. He'd watched Jerusalem be burned, destroyed, because the people time after time had continued to violate God's law, trying to live up to it, but couldn't do it. And so they violated over and over and over again, and God allowed them to be taken into captivity. Again, change of method, same message. And Jeremiah, this weeping prophet who had a lot to be sad about, he sits outside of the burned ruins of Jerusalem, and God begins to reveal to him that it's not always going to be this way. Jeremiah, things are going to change, and this is why they're going to change. I know these people can't live up to what I've asked of them, so I'm going to make it possible. And so I'm going to put my law on their inward parts, and I'm going to write it on their hearts so that they can be my people because they're going to have it in them and with them, and it's going to be in their minds and in their hearts. How much more today when we realize that it is God's imprinted will, if you will, that is written on my heart. When he fills me with his Holy Spirit, the law is written on my inward parts. I don't have a hard time understanding what his will is for me because his will is that I live up to his requirements of the law. The law I need you to live up to. This law, it's what separates you from sin and unto me. And when you live up to it, it helps you to be righteous with me. You know, Moses' appearance when he came down the mountain changed. His countenance was different because he'd been in the presence of God. How much more should our appearance, our countenance change when we've been in the presence of God? People ought to, when we walk out of here, people ought to be like, huh, I don't know what it is, but something's different. I can't explain it. I mean, they're the same person. They look the same. They, they talk the same. They, they, they're the same, but they're different. Something. There's a glow. They're happy. I don't know. They're just different. So as the Spirit of God began to be poured out, people began to experience the power of God working in their lives. Those that were around began to notice an immediate change. They're the same Galileans, but something. People were looking different, acting different. It had nothing to do with the way they were dressed or what they had on. There was something different that was showing up in them because there was a complete change of their life. So much so that men around town began to accuse these 120 new spirit-filled Christians of being drunk. And Peter didn't deny that they were drunk, y'all. He did not deny it. He just said, these aren't drunk like you think they are. Right? Some of y'all ought to walk out of here once in a while staggering a little bit. So pastor can say, it's not the Mad Dog 2020. It is not the JD. They drunk, but not like you think they are. He begins to quote from the prophet Joel, and he says, they ain't drunk like you think they are, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
It'll come to pass in the last day. He said, God, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters, they're going to prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Their old men will dream dreams. And on the men's servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they're going to prophesy. Peter went on to explain what they had done, how they crucified Jesus Christ, and they began to feel the convicting presence of God. They felt the weight and the magnitude of their sin. They recognized their condition. And they asked him and the other disciples, they were like, you're right, we did wrong, we know we did wrong. What do we do now? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And what I love about Peter is he then makes this famous altar call that many people have made into the entire message. But it's just the altar call, and here's why it's the altar call. Because Peter preached them under conviction, and then he gave them hope. And any message that comes across this pulpit or any other pulpit if it preaches you under conviction, it's the right message. But the ending is wrong if it doesn't give you hope. Because conviction is meant to point you to Christ. It's meant to point you to the Savior. Where we get hope from. And so Peter, he preaches them under conviction, Pastor. He lets them know they did wrong. And then he says, but there's a way of escape. And Peter said unto them, repent. In other words, turn around, stop acting stupid, stop living wrong, live right, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then he makes this amazing promise. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for those of many have been told that that was a one-time occurrence, that God no longer pours out his Spirit into the lives of people, I got good news for you. As the disciples of John were told by Jesus, go and tell them what you've seen and what you've heard. I can only tell you what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced. On January 24th, 1983, in a little brick two-story building on Route 1, Jefferson Davis Highway, if you go by there right now, it's known as the Hanover Thrift Store with a big sign in the middle that says, Class and Trash. I knelt in that building at an old wooden bench that was painted brown. And having repented of my sins and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, I asked Jesus to consume me, to fill me, and he did. He filled me with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He came and he wrote his law in my mind and in my heart. After all, Peter went on to say, look, my altar call is not just for you that are hearing it right now, but this promise is to you and to your children, and to their children, and to their children, and to their children, and as many as the Lord our God would call. If the musicians would come, ladies and gentlemen, here's where we're at today. We're in a church service where you can't come to the altar. But what are we also are is we're in violation of God's law. What was given as the law of the first Pentecost at Mount Sinai has been violated over and over and over again by the lives that we have lived. We have not lived righteously. We haven't. We have not lived right. And because we have not, we're in need of atonement or restitution. The reason I know we have not is because Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 8, he says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I think all, I'm not an English major, but I think all still means all. Thank you. And that means all, every one of us. We're all short. 
We all came up short. I know some of y'all don't like that because I just called you short, but I've been there all my life. I've been looked down on all my life, literally, by tall people. But we're all short, every one of us. But Paul didn't just tell us we were short. He then said, but there was this guy who came. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. We need the discipline in our lives to live after his spirit, but we can't do it on our own. So he provides us what is needed. He gives us the power of his spirit that comes and dwells within us and allows us to walk free and to live free from the sin. The Bible says that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. If you've ever tried to understand this without the help of the spirit of God, this can kill you. The Bible says that the word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Swords can be used to kill, or a really sharp one can be used to do delicate surgery. We call them scalpels now. But when the Spirit brings this, it gives us life. We can, this can be used in a lot of ways, but I promise you today, if you'll take this and accompany it with the Spirit of God working in you, the law that's been written on your inward parts, if you'll take this and accompany it with the Spirit, this will bring anything back to life again. And so today, if you would stand with me. If you're here today and maybe this is the first time you've ever heard any of this craziness. I want you to know it is in the Word of God and it is alive and real. And God has the power right now in this moment today to change everything in your life. Before we go to the rest of this, I just want to pray with you very quickly. If this is your first time here, nobody's going to be able to come up to you and pray with you individually. So I just want to lead you in a moment of prayer before we go any further. If this is your brand, first time here and you want to pray this prayer, pray it with me. For everybody else, for somebody that's maybe coming to God for the first time, I'd ask you to join with me and pray this as well. Father, pray it with me. Repeat after me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the coming of your spirit. Father, my life has not always pleased you, but I want to change. I want my life to matter. I want to live differently. Today, I ask you to forgive me of every time I've ever done it wrong and help me today to begin to do it right. I'm so thankful, God, that you died for me. Today, I take a first step toward you and I surrender myself to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if this is the first time you ever prayed a prayer like that, I want you to contact us this week at the church. we got next steps we want to help you to go through. We want to help to put you in the right direction. We want to help to start your relationship with Jesus off in the right way. 
But if you've been hanging out around here for a long time and you know you're not living up to what God has for you because you haven't quite done it all the right way, I want you to know today that if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, the Bible says there's a moment comes when you just need to stir up the gift. Maybe it's because you haven't been in the presence of God as often as you needed to be. Maybe it's because you've allowed things to separate you from God. If that's the case, today's a good time to re-experience the power of, the, of Pentecost in your life. But if you've never experienced that today, it's okay. All it takes is a couple of things. You've got to surrender your heart to God and desire Him more than you want anything else. I've, I know people that were filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit in their car. I know people that have been filled with the Holy Spirit in the barn. I know people that have been filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit during worship service in the back of auditoriums. And I know people that have been filled with it in the altar call. Wherever it is and wherever you are, if you're hungry, God will fill you right there. And so today I want us to pray all over this house as they get ready to sing. I want us to pray together. We're going to surrender ourselves to him today. Father, I thank you for the moment that we're in right now. Lord, you said when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And today, God, all of us are in this one place together. Lord, I don't know if there's going to be a sound from heaven that we can hear. I don't know if there's going to be fire that's going to fall on people's heads. But what I do know is you desire to live in the hearts of your people. And today, I surrender my heart and my mind to you. God, write your law on my heart once again. Write it in my mind. Let me experience your presence in me like I've never experienced it before. I thank you today for your goodness, your mercy, your grace, which is everlasting. Oh, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you. Let's sing together and continue to worship him for a moment.
going to sing the last part of the song in just a moment. But before they do, if you're in this house today, I want you to know God has everything planned for you already. He has amazing things in store for you. And today could be the beginning of something amazing in your life. Again, surrender yourself to him today. Allow him to come and dwell in your life and to walk with you and talk with you and be with you. It is his desire today that we live free from sin. It is his desire today that we live free from condemnation and the condemnation that would come on us because of the sinful lifestyle we've lived. I want you to know today, God wants to set you free. And they're getting ready to sing a part of the song that gets me every time. But before they do, I want you to, all across this house, let's surrender ourselves to him. Every hand lifted toward heaven. Father, we surrender today. We've tried to do it on our own. We're incapable, God. But today we give ourselves to you completely and wholly. God, I'm not, I'm not trying to do it my own way anymore. I want to do it your way. I want to be pleasing to you. I surrender myself to you today, God. Not going to pursue the things of this flesh, but I'm going to pursue your spirit. It will be my drive, my aim, my goal. I want your spirit to have free reign in my life. Reign in me, oh God. Let your spirit reign in this place. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name.